We adhere to the One Health philosophy, working within the paradigm that animals, ecosystem, and human health are all interconnected. Welcome to the Dr. Cliff Podcast. That quote is brought to you by Dr. Shetty from VetTales.com. Dr. Shetty, she's an enormous inspiration to me, both as a veterinarian, as a wildlife rescuer, and as a world traveler. And I'm so excited to tell everyone that she is today's guest on the Dr. Cliff Podcast. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get right to this. Happy World Wildlife Day, Dr. Shetty. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a it's a good day to join, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even really uh, I sort of clued in just halfway through the day. Hey, I'm going to get to talk to another wildlife uh, rescuer on World Wildlife Day. So you're well. You know what? Tell me. Uh, I know all about you because I've been uh, following you on YouTube and. Uh, at vettails.com. And I should say, for all the listeners, as always, there'll be lots of uh, information for the guests, contact uh, info at the uh, description on the the podcast uh, front page, so they don't have to kind of listen if you say what your your Instagram is or your YouTube or whatnot. But let's, uh, let's hear the story, Dr. Shetty, about you traveling around the world. How did you get to live this amazing life? Well, it's a it's a long story, um, but I was working with wildlife in Australia um, before I moved overseas. I was struggling a little bit because I was working at both a wildlife hospital and a hospital. I often struggled going from being able to treat every patient with the gold standard care without having to ask how much they could afford because my wildlife patients just got to be treated no matter what. And then I would go and see a client with a little puppy or, you know, an elderly cat or something like this. And if they don't have the money to pay for the consult or treatment, I'd have to turn them away. And I really struggled with um, going back and forward between that type, you know, a business environment and a conservation environment. So I eventually applied for a job working uh, solely with wildlife, which was the job I got with Animals Asia uh, in China, rescuing bears from bile farms. And that was very, very rewarding work, Um, really, really amazing and very rewarding. But it was also very, very heartbreaking working so closely with an industry that isn't changing very quickly, unfortunately, in China. And um, the bears we were rescuing uh, were this level of cruelty, uh, poor animal welfare that I hadn't really been exposed to before. And after two years, I was pretty emotionally there. Um, and I was finding it was making me to sometimes make veterinary decisions like euthanasia because I was so attached to the bears we rescued and we euthanized so many that it gets harder and harder every time. And so I kind of was ready, I guess, to work for myself and, and try and find a pathway that allowed me to help animals without kind of compromising my morals and without leaving me with such bad compassion fatigue. And so um, basically I with my partner at the time who was a sailor, we decided to move on board a sailboat. And um, after about a year on board, I inherited the boat just for myself and um, continued the mission. But as soon as we moved on board, the plan was always to do work with animals and we care to animals. And so the first year was really just getting it started. And in the last three years, developing it where um, it's kind of a combination of giving direct veterinary care to animals 
doing education with um, local communities and local veterinarians and animal workers on how they can improve animal welfare and health and then filming it all and putting it on social media to also then share it with everybody else. So the last almost four years have been um, living aboard and yeah, doing the veterinary dream of just sailing around and helping animals. So it's been pretty, pretty great. It is the dream. And uh, so you're talking about the last four years, uh, you're really focusing on the social media. And so you came out of Australia, as I can tell from your wonderful accent, like, where have you gone? Yeah. So since, um, since living on the boat, I, like I said, from working uh, with the bears in China, I traveled through Asia fairly extensively doing different wildlife work. But since getting the boat, I bought the boat in Panama um, and basically have just been going up the coast, the Pacific coast. So Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and now Mexico. So hit pretty much all the countries along the way. And I did go and volunteer in Guatemala uh, without the boat as well. So we almost covered all of Central America, which has been pretty awesome. So um, I find it's a really great place to work. There's a lot of wildlife opportunities here, um, but also there's a lot of domestic animals in need um, as well. So it's been a really good place to teach other people, but also to find um, important veterinary work. Did you know Spanish before you started doing this trip? Because I saw you speak in Spanish on one of your latest yeah. episodes. <laughs> Yeah, no, I um, I didn't hablo any Espanol before <laughs> I got to, um, to Central America. In Australia, it's it's not a common language to get taught in Australia. We tend to get like Indonesian, Mandarin, Japanese in school. Mm. So, um, yeah, I learned Japanese in school, which hasn't helped me so far. And then I learned a little Mandarin when I lived in China, but that was really, really difficult. And, yeah, since arriving in Panama now, finally almost four years on, I am fairly proficient with my Spanish, would like to be better, but you know, it's, it's a process. Conversational at least. So that's conversational. Good. Yeah. I know a little bit of Japanese, but that's because I, I, I got my black belt in judo. And so you learn a lot of Japanese. Uh, and I actually know one saying from, I learned in grade seven French class, how to say in Japanese, please tie your shoelaces. <laughs> and it's stuck. We have a lot of uh, Chinese clients here in, in the Toronto area. Uh, so I was learning Mandarin for quite a while. And I was actually hoping on my first trip before Jamaica four or five years ago, I was hoping to go to Beijing and it just didn't work out. Um, so I was learning Mandarin, but now it's Greek. So I, I kind of done what you've done is I've gone to all these different, not even related languages. You know, like it'd be different if you did French and Italian and Spanish. They're all similar, but yeah, yeah you're uh, that one side of your brain must always be firing trying to figure out what language is that. Yeah, I um, I attempted to start learning Spanish while I was still living in China because I knew I was going to Panama and that just my brain couldn't deal with trying to. I, I barely spoke any Mandarin. It was even after two years of being there, it was pretty um poor effort <laughs> but you know like my brain just couldn't handle having like three different words for green or the number one or something yeah. in my head so i had to just wait until i left <laughs> uh, 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 something i've found that has happened to me i'm i'm really studying hard like an hour a day my greek because my wife is greek and i like to know what she's saying to me when she's yelling at me 
sometimes I wish I didn't know, but um, <laughs> I find if if someone says something to me in another language, like I'll often I'll say hello or or whatever, and I'll start talking another language. Um, I'll I'll answer it in Greek. Like even if they're asking me something in Mandarin, I'll answer it in Greek, and it's like my brain just says, "Well, that's not English, so it must be Greek." Do you get that the same? Yes, yeah, that's definitely what was happening when I attempted to learn Spanish when I was in China. Uh, it's been so long now that for the most part, my brain just switches to Spanish, which is good. But um, but that's four years of immersion, so it yeah. takes a while. I'm being there nonstop, nonstop. That's amazing. Your YouTube channel, what is, uh, it's Sailing Chuffed, right? Yeah, Vet Tales Sailing Chuffed. What, is, what does Stay Chuffed mean? You always end your episodes with that. Yeah, it's like British Australian slang for um, being pleased or happy. So people use it like, you know, I was chuffed that my football team won or something. Ah, all right. So one of the one of the uh, wildlife rescuers I work with every Friday, I volunteer at a wildlife rehab place, and she's from Australia um, and only came here maybe a year ago. So if she were to say to me, hey, good morning, Cliff, how are you? Would I say, I'm, I'm, I'm chuffed? Yeah, it can be used that way. So you can say that, yeah, I'm feeling chuffed. Or that's, that's kind of the play on words we use for the most part with our different um, donation tiers as well, where it's like feeling chuffed, staying chuffed, getting chuffed, because it's nice. you know, feeling happy or, yeah. <laughs> the donation tiers you're talking about on your Patreon campaign. Yeah, that's right. So the patrons, how we get most of the donations to fund um, what we do, and it's kind of directed from YouTube to the Patreon page. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, and I and I I will implore all the listeners to to check out that Patreon. You can literally just uh, search for Doctor Shetty or search for Vet Tales or Staying Chuffed, or it'll uh, you'll you'll find it uh, without a doubt, and we'll have a link on on our page too. So your, I mean, your YouTube channel, which has grown quite nicely over the last four years, I think you're on season three right now. Yep, that's right. You're you're rescuing animals. You're having to fix your your boat, which that's a lot of work, and that's a constant battle as keeping your uh, your home in tip top shape. <laughs> do you do all the editing? Because I don't know how to do that stuff. I get young kids to do it. Yeah, no, I I pretty much did it all myself in the beginning. Um, and my partner, Jim, now, he does a lot of the filming and helps me with editing, which is really great. So that's kind of been in the last year or so. Um, but, yeah, so for the most part, a typical day might be going out to the boat in the morning for a few hours to fix things. And then we might do a couple of vaccinations and then come home and work on editing for an hour. So, it, yeah, it's a, it can be – it's a lot of hats to wear. I always joke I'm a um, – jack of all trades and master of none <laughs> with network and editing and all that. And I think even being a regular veterinarian, it's pretty much the same too. We got to do, sure. we're like, like uh, Kramer says in Seinfeld, we got to do all these different animals, all these different specialties. And we're, we're quite good at all of them, but we don't, we don't master any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I got to like being that way. It's nice to have a lot of skills and I think it's um, keeps life much more interesting too, where you kind of, dabbling in a lot of different things so yeah you get to go home and when uh the family asks hey how was your day what did you do today they all get quiet for a second because they know they're going to hear a story yeah yeah definitely this is yours tends to be uh you know i i chased a donkey down the street because he had a 
you know, a thorn in its hoof or, uh, you know, I wrestled the dog on the table, sedated it and, and took out a whatever out of its face. Like yours are, yours are a lot more interesting than what we have to go through. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> they keep you. Now you're talking about going home for the day. So you're not in a, you're not staying at the boat right now. You're in a hotel, right? Yeah, that's right. So hopefully for only another week, but the last year we've been refitting the entire boat. So it's been a really big project. Um, all new, basically the entire boat's been repainted. We had to weld, we had to fiberglass things. We, it was a really big job. Almost everything on the boat's been replaced. So very time consuming and expensive, but worth it because uh, hopefully now we've got our little floating home and veterinary clinic up and up and going again. So we're hoping to be back in the water in a week or maybe two, hopefully and a week. <laughs> is your traveling going to be limited with COVID or are you still going to be able to go from beach to beach? Uh, for the most part, because we're planning on staying in Mexico for the next year, it shouldn't be too badly affected. So far, Mexico's stayed pretty open. Uh, the borders have been open and they've also stayed um, quite open between states and things like that. So as far as we can anticipate, we should be able to travel freely through Mexico, which will be really nice. So and there's a lot of really great areas here, uh, both with wildlife and obviously just nice cities to explore with domestic animals too. So we're very excited to get moving again. Yeah, I bet. You're, uh, most of us, uh, if we could just get a couple of weeks away from our house, we're happy. But you're used to, you, you've basically been living in someone else's house for a year. You're, you're not, you haven't even been able to go to your own home. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been... It's been an experience for sure. We, we kind of call the hotel home now, which is really weird, but uh, we're very much looking forward to going back to the real home and being back on Chuff. So, yeah, I've I've been on board for about three years before the haul out, so it's um, been weird living on land again. You're doing all these repairs. Like, you and Jim are doing all these repairs yourself. You're, I think your best, your most watched video is a do-it-yourself epoxy kind of repair. Uh, yeah. which I find cool because I don't watch many veterinarian type videos anymore. Uh, sometimes I get mad at the camera and say, ah, you're not doing it right. Or, you know, it's not a corn allergy or whatever the situation may be, but I get to learn all about uh, boat repair, watching your, your episodes. How did you learn? Did you grow up knowing how to do this or? No, I had never been on any sailboat until I moved on board Chuff. So it was very new to me. I had grown up in a beach community, though, so I'd been exposed to boating uh, you know, <laughs> out in little dinghies to go fishing and stuff, but not not the sailing world. Um, my dad is an electrician, though, and so I guess I did, like, he was always repairing things around the house, and I was always very interested in it. But for the most part, it's been a on-the-job learning. Um, YouTube has been quite useful. Other sailors in the yard have been really useful. Everyone's really very helpful. It's a very small community in the sailing community, kind of like the veterinary community where everyone's always very willing on forums or if they're around, if you're like, hey, kind of run into a bit of trouble to kind of drop everything and come and give you a hand. So uh, it's a really nice little community that we've got here. So, yeah, it's been trial and error and um, just kind of research and then try and do it. And for the most part, we've had pretty good success. So. And if it doesn't work out, the uh, the boat doesn't suffer in pain and you get to try again the next day. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> no anesthetics needed. It's not so bad. Yeah. 
Well, talk about so talk about anesthetics. I mean, I've seen in some of your videos you giving a like an IM injection of whatever to sedate mm-hmm. the animal, and you'll do the procedure there on the table, uh, which is near and dear to my heart. I, I, I recognize what that's like, where uh, the lighting is basically the sun and and usually a little uh, reading light on the top of your head that you take from camping. But do you ever do you ever sort of like knock on the door of a local veterinarian and, and utilize their their clinic or is where you're at is there no veterinarian clinics yeah so believe it or not most of the animal footage from this last year has been filmed at the local veterinary clinic so that is the that is the state of the veterinary clinics here um, oh wow for them there, there are some bigger clinics about 45 minutes away in the city that do have x-ray and ultrasound but it's pretty rare not every clinic has x-ray and ultrasound or blood machines and those that do the level of training in their use isn't always very high. And so, um, you know, for example, if you get a dog x-ray that has a broken leg, you'll get a view of the leg. And if it's very obviously broken, you will know, but you might not get, you know, a VD and a lateral and a, you know, comparison on the other leg. So it's a very different working world. The local veterinarian that that I work with here where we do most of the spay and neuter campaigns has no inhalant anesthetic. So it's all injectable. Um, the area she does surgery is kind of like where her toilets are and they're like outside of the clinic under a um, like corrugated iron roof. <laughs> and there's a chicken, like a little <laughs> chicken breeding area, like right next to it. So I always end up with chickens everywhere when I'm trying to do surgery. She sees a lot of large animals and the veterinary school here doesn't always train the vets very um, competently in small animal medicine. So um, a lot of what I've done is also helping her learn more, um, you know, to try and improve her skills um, and help build trust between her and the community because uh, just like with us, a, a few bad surgeries or a few bad medical cases can, especially in a small town, can really turn the community against a veterinary centre. And so part of what we've been doing here is also working between the community and the doctor that's here to help build more trust now that there's a bit more training in place. And we've also connected her with some regional veterinarians that do the spay and neuter campaign to have some more additional training so that now she's got a bit of a support network as well. So um, it's not we very much try to not just focus on individual cases or individual campaigns, but also to help leave it. So when we leave the area, the overall standards improve so that then the work can continue up, can continue after we're gone. So that's a really kind of important part for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's uh, yeah, it is quite a, I mean, for <laughs> veterinarians like myself and, and especially ones that, that travel as I do, and I don't, I don't, I haven't traveled yet anywhere near as much as you have, but uh, it, it was something I wasn't prepared for. And I was pretty happy on my first trip of just going and, and fixing the case, you know, and treating the case. And then, you know, after three weeks in Jamaica, I left and I left being a much better surgeon and a much better communicator uh, really appreciating my job and the things I have back home. And I kind of realized, okay, but they're still having the same problems after I've gone. Um, uh, but you've, you kind of came to that conclusion a lot faster than I did. And, and, and I'll be honest, you're, you're humbling me because you've, uh, you've done a much better job at, at 
improving the standards after you leave. Now, have you ever have you ever gone back to a community that you've been to once and sort of been amazed and seen the the fruits of your labor? I guess um, I haven't since we've been in Central America, but I think working with Animals Asia was a really good, um, I guess, learning opportunity in that regard for me because I was there for two years working in one spot in China and we did also do some work with the domestic animals. And so one of my jobs was vaccinating a ring of dogs around the bear centre so tact is a bit of a barrier because bears, for example, can get to stemper and parvovirus. And so the idea was if we've got a little protected ring of vaccinated dogs around us, hopefully then we're reducing the risk of that coming into the center. So one of my jobs was working with the local dogs. And in the two years I was there, um, one story I like to tell was there was this really old man, a really old elderly man, a farmer who had a dog called Jade and she was always tied up and she would get so excited to see us when we would get there that she would wet herself she because she was never never got any attention he only fed her rice so she was quite malnourished and so I would go almost every week and I would walk her and we would bath her and I would bring her food and I would talk to him about how important the food was and I would bring a translator and it was always this thing and you know eight months later it's pretty much the same 14 months later Jade wasn't on the chain anymore. She was allowed to run around the house. And then right before I left, two years later, he had bought his own bag of dog food for Jade. And so it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, it happened slowly, but, you know, it did happen. Like him seeing how much I cared and me talking to him over and over again, it it does eventually help, you know. And um, I have heard stories from where we've been in Panama from my friends who have boats there um because in two of the islands we actually spayed every female dog bar about three of them um in two communities so we did i think something like 100 animals over the two communities and they still even now three years on have a far healthier population and far less stray dogs just from that one really big campaign we did to try and um kind of make have a lasting effect so I do think it does have a long-term effect, even if you don't necessarily see it there and then, but we are hoping to eventually, you know, turn the journey around and come back through again and see, and see what's happened. But even here in Puerto Madero, where we've got the boat, I spoke to the veterinarian the other day and she said to me like, oh yeah, um, the regional vet, Dr. Barraquel, he's coming back in two weeks for another spay and neuter campaign. And so that was organised without me even knowing about it. So they're now organizing it themselves. And so, um, you know, that was a really nice little thing. I was like, oh, cool. They don't need me anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, your job is to make yourself obsolete as fast as possible. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. Which is, you so, know, it's a funny way to work, but it's, it's a good way. To do it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, so you're in Panama. Have you had any, is Panama, Panama a, communist country no no um the, the reason i ask is have you, have you gone to any communities or any countries where you kind of felt unwelcomed or you were hindered due to like local politics or religion or something like that where you couldn't give the medicine the medicine had to go to the to the government and then they got to direct it out or have you had any problems like that yeah definitely um 
Central America has been a lot easier, but Asia was difficult. Um, Thailand, for example, euthanasia is illegal um, because of the Buddhist wow. practices. So um, I, I have to admit I haven't been to Thailand for quite some time. I'm not sure if anything's changed, but but at least um, it was probably about six years ago I was there, and um, at that time you couldn't euthanize animals, and that was incredibly hard because we'd sometimes have par- you know paralyzed dogs and you'd more or less have to just wait um, with a lot of pain relief until they passed away. Um in China, there's also just really heavy restrictions on um, drugs. So things like tramadol and codeine are in the same class of drugs as heroin. And so um, you just cannot get them um, in the country without certain licensing. Central America, for the most part, has been a lot easier. There are some restrictions with what you're able to do as a non-licensed veterinarian, but for the most part, as long as you work with a registered veterinarian, you pretty much um, can do most things. So I've always worked under the umbrella of a local veterinarian to to kind of cover that kind of thing. But I have travelled with medicines on board and I always just carry my uh, registration certificate and I usually try and have like a script from the country I'm exiting to say that I was given, you know, given the medicine by a veterinarian and that I'm a veterinarian in Spanish And so far, I've never had any trouble. So I think for the most part, volunteering in Central America and Mexico is not so bad um, in terms of being able to get medicine. The biggest thing is that some medicines just don't exist here or they're very expensive. You know, we're getting some of the more, you know, nice injectable antibiotics, for example, and pain relief just isn't as easy. (laughs) Isn't, yeah, it's just, it it can be a real eye-opener. I remember... Mm -hmm. So again, I went to Jamaica as my first trip in uh, September of 2016. And a couple of months prior, I went there just for three or four days to kind of scout out the place, beat all the, the, the important people and kind of plan the trip. And they were talking to me and, and recognize I had never practiced medicine or really considered practicing medicine anywhere other than the Toronto area prior to this for almost 20 years. Uh, it was 18 years at that point. And they started talking about using xylazine as an injectable sedative. And I almost fell off my chair because I had to explain to them that back in the 90s, when I was in vet school, I graduated in 98, I had written a paper in maybe in 1995 about why we no longer use xylazine in dogs. And here, this was they, they were so proud that they had xylazine for all their spays and neuters. And, you know, they all did great. Like I ended up doing just some pretty, what I would have thought at the time were horrific, difficult surgeries, incredibly unstable and sick patients with bleeding disorders and, you know, ehrlichia and all these problems. And yet these animals came out of it with flying colors. And I, I, I have a few theories, but I'm still not sure why. You know, in these other underserviced countries and these sort of developing countries, why they don't really have bladder stones and blown cruciates and they just manage. They swallow mango pits and they don't seem to ever get obstructed. I can't figure out why us Canadian uh, or the Canadian dogs and cats are so we might actually be soft here in the great white north. I'm not really sure what the what the issue is. 
No, it's the same going back to Australia. You know, I always joke that Australian dogs are wussies compared to, um, you know, compared to the Mexico dogs. But yeah, I've seen dogs here. Like we had one rescue come in that had healed a fractured femur and it had healed overlapping by about three centimetres just on the streets, presumably. And the dog was running yeah. around fine. It was kind of somewhat... Um, the only reason we realized was there was a wound on the leg. And when we kind of started cleaning it, there was a bone fragment and we were like, Oh, okay. Pulled that out, cleaned it. And then, um, the vet I was working with at the time actually did have x-rays in San Cristobal where I was. And, um, we took an x-ray and we're like, Oh, that's a healed fracture. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We don't need to do anything more. Um, you know, it's pretty amazing. And yeah, as you were saying, I, my general anesthetic, protocol is xylazine, ketamine and midazolam. Um, it's it's called ketamid, which is a really nice little combo ketamine, midazolam all in one and um, and then the xylazine. And I also felt like a little uncomfortable at first using, using it, but um, I've never had an anesthetic death under it, even with some very debilitated dogs with, you know, like blood, you know, I've done spays where the dogs have bruising from a lichia before you even start surgery. Um, and I've got it pretty down now where my spays wake up about four minutes after I close. I've got my, I've got my like top up and my, you know, induction dose is all really pretty down pat. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you kind of learn to, to make do, which is, you know, very important, I think, but yeah, it can be a little scary at first with, with some of these medicines that you're like, I shouldn't use this. You're not allowed to use this. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to solve these problems and make diagnoses without either yeah. without good x-rays, like with, certainly without yeah. digital x-rays yeah. or without often without x-rays at all. Um, and have you, you know, you've been doing this traveling for about four years. Have you spent time back in sort of the the perfect world of Australia during that period and worked at a companion animal hospital? Yeah, I've locumed in Australia just to save up extra money here and there throughout it. And it's always um, a, a strange transition for me. I do really think though that it's made me a much better veterinarian overall um, just because you're exposed to so many things and you get a lot more confident in your own ability because you realise that your brain and your hands can do 99% of the work and, you know, the instruments and the tools that we have in the clinic are really important, but our brains and our hands are the most important tool. Yeah. Um, I feel like in general, um, a good, taking a good history and doing a really good physical examination is so underappreciated and not maybe, and maybe even like under-respected a little bit now because it's so often you know a vomiting dog comes in and you're like oh well, let's run a blood test and then i'll know what's going on or let's do an x-ray and then i'll know whereas you can gain so so much if you ask some good questions and you know do a proper physical exam um so i think it's really important to remember that yeah hopefully uh, any i got a lot of uh like future veterinarians and vet mm-hmm. students following me so when they hear this I'm, i constantly tell them get out and volunteer and volunteer in, in developing countries because one, they need it. Yeah. Two, it will make you such a better practitioner of both medicine and surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was pretty, I'm a pretty decent, I'm quite a good soft tissue surgeon. Uh, did no orthopedics until about two and a half years ago when I started volunteering with the wildlife rehab. 
And now mm-hmm. pinning a bird and, and I'm starting to do some mammals is a, is a no big deal. But coming from that first trip in Jamaica, I became, even just in three weeks, I became such a more confident and competent surgeon. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's the main sort of the main takeaway that I'm trying to get these students to, to realize is, uh, is put away VIN. I don't, do you guys use VIN? Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't yeah. used it for many years, but yes, I have I have used it. Yeah, them. like put away yeah. bin and just get an IV line into that animal and do your exam. And the odds are what you think it is is probably what it is. Um, you know, and, and obviously if you've got the x-rays and you've got the means, do them if it's necessary, but um, you know, don't don't do them to sort of because you're second guessing yourself. Do it because you pretty much know what it is and you just want to confirm, you know, and follow up. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been made, it's made me such a better, uh, veterinarian. That's, uh, that's for sure. And for certain, I mean, it, it sounds sort of cliche, but a much better person. Like I, I, you appreciate your life. You appreciate your job. I mean, as you know, like in, in, at least in North America, the veterinarian field is not, very well appreciated by veterinarians like the majority of veterinarians would not recommend that their children follow their footsteps yeah. uh is it the same in australia yeah definitely i i just um did a talk at a conference about um like a new imagined future for veterinary medicine which was kind of based on that that so many there's so much dissatisfaction among veterinarians where you know, you become a veterinarian because you love animals and you want to save animals, but the reality in a business isn't always the same as how you imagined it. And I think a lot of people get a little bit disillusioned, you know, as they continue to practice. So, um, yeah, I definitely think that that's a really important thing that needs to be addressed in the veterinary industry is how we can better service animals and how we can do so affordably because obviously as businesses grow and um, things become more expensive, we charge more and then not everybody can afford it and it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle at times. But also um, I think recognising that the, you know, 60-hour, 70-hour work week, the um, student debt, the um, compassion fatigue, the high expectations, getting sued, all of those things need to to be changed and I think... um, taking a big step back and reimagining how the veterinary industry is set up is is something that will will need to happen in the future if we want to keep young vets around um, and in the profession for longer. Yeah. Do you think though, I mean, first of all, do you have, I think I know the answer, but you don't, you don't feel that way about your career. Like you love being a veterinarian and, and you look forward to it every day, most of the time. Anyways, do you think that's a factor of you and how, your personality and your sort of emotional mindset or do you think it's primarily that you've been able to step away from companion animal medicine and surgery and and focus on on wildlife i think a mixture of both because um for the most part this last year being here i've done predominantly domestic and companion animals Mm. and so i think the big thing for me um was taking a step out of um the classic veterinary clinic um i think at the moment the way a classic veterinary clinic is set up is um 
there are some very great, I'm sure you're a really good boss to have, but you know, there are, there are a lot of clinics in my, the clinics I worked in when I was younger were rural clinics. The senior veterinarian was a lot older. He owned the practice. He'd been doing things a certain way for 40 to 50 years and nobody got a say in, in how that was, you know? And so I think that contributes greatly to people feeling dissatisfied and I was also just so tired, you know, between the after hours and the long hours and then being somebody who is really, really dedicated and wants to do the best for all my patients. Um, I think as a young vet, I was just so tired all the time. And now I think the biggest change for me that keeps me so passionate about my career is that I have time to be passionate about it. You know, I, I don't do veterinary work every single day and I don't do it for eight hours every single day. I might, you know, in a week I might do you know, 18 hours of veterinary work and then I'll do 18 hours of boat work and editing work. And then I'll, and I also am really careful to make sure that my free time for things that I enjoy is kind of equal to the amount of time that I put into work-related things. And I think that's something that as a society, we don't really do anymore. We, you know, spend so much time at work and sleeping to catch up from how tired we are from work. And we don't spend that much time, you know, being with family and reading books and surfing or going to the beach or whatever it is that you like to do, you know. So um, I've really worked very hard to have a really stable work-life balance. And I know it's much easier to do that when you live on a sailboat in Mexico. But, um, you know, I do think it's something that as an industry we need to strive for within every veterinary clinic and every practice to try and get those hours down a little more and make the industry kind of a happier place for everybody to be, I guess. Yeah, I would say, you know, you joked about it being easy. You know, it's easy for you to say when you're on a boat in Mexico. They didn't just give you this boat. You didn't win the lottery, no. and they and they gave like yeah. you. You took a chance. You took a big mm-hmm. chance at a, at a huge, huge risk, uh, sort of to your time and and financial. And you made that that lifestyle change. And and you know, uh, I'm not living on a boat here in Canada. There's no way. It's a little too cold. Though we are going to talk <laughs> about surfing in a second uh, mm-hmm. and surfing in ice water. You know, I've made that change as well that that I, I choose to do what I love and, and thank goodness my job is, is part of it. But you're actually one of the few people who have found that work-life balance and it yeah. truly is a balance. Like it truly yeah. is a, a, you know, 50-50 kind of split for you. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that's probably one of the biggest things that the industry is lacking is I just think, you know, people are like, oh, I don't understand why I'm unhappy. You know, I really wanted to be a vet. I thought I would love it. But it's like, I really just believe that it's kind of impossible to be happy if you're working in an industry that it requires so much physical, mental and emotional commitment because being a vet is, you know, it's pretty physically demanding. We're emotionally committed and we're having to use our brains constantly at a pretty high level. I don't think anybody can do that for 60 hours in a week and not start to feel either depressed or unhappy at some stage you know it's just kind of impossible we weren't really built to do that and so I think recognizing that and and being able to have a little more free time is really important yeah so talking about free time we've we've talked about sort of two shared loves traveling and veterinary medicine and the last one 
hanging 10, or at least I didn't even know. I only picked up surfing. So we're talking about surfing here. I only picked up surfing six months ago, eight months ago, maybe in the summer here. So I didn't even know what hang 10 meant until I started reading magazines. And for those who don't know, it's where you stand on, usually on a longboard, right? Yeah. yeah. And you have all 10 toes curled over the edge. They're hanging over the the edge of the surfboard. Um, uh, You're a good surfer. You're, uh, you're, you're carving some pretty decent waves there, um, but you're an Aussie. You, you guys, you guys surf like we play hockey. Everyone knows how, right? Well, I actually only learned to surf not even two years ago. So really, (laughs) oh yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think what it was now. No, no, I lie. It was, it was two and a half years ago. Yeah. Two and a half years ago. My, my years Uh, of blend in 2020s disappeared a little bit. There's a couple of things going against me for uh, for for catching up. One of them is I'm a lot older than you are, and that makes a difference. Secondly, I don't have the opportunity. We have no tides here. We're surfing yeah. on great lakes. Have you ever done lake surfing before? No, no. I've only done tropic tropical ocean surfing. <laughs> I've never surfed anywhere very cold either. Well, yeah. And so not only is it cold because we don't have. So I started in in July there are no waves in July. Like it's, it is flat as can be. So I got to practice my paddling and my balance and doing planks and whatnot. But, but all of our waves show up due to the wind and our best, so I'm doing air quotes for the people not watching this, our best waves are January and February and they're due to wind. You know, we need a long and hard wind for, from a certain direction. So the waves are also like, it's like trying to surf in a washing machine, apparently. Oh God. <laughs> um, they're very sloppy. They're very erratic uh, and coming in in different angles. Whereas you guys, I just, I watched one of your ones and you were talking about this one spot where it's like Saladita? potentially two kilometers of a single oh, wave. Pavonis. Yeah, Pavonis. Mm. Like, very good wave, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a nice... That's a nice wave to learn because you can uh, yeah. you just practice and practice and practice and practice. So what yeah. are you, uh, I'm still riding my eight foot foamy. What are you riding right now? I have an eight foot custom board that was made for me. It's, um, I, I got very into surfing very quickly and so I paid to have a custom board made. It's probably the biggest purchase I've made in 10 years. It's an eight foot kind of nose rider style board. So it's been made to be able to ride single fin and you can hang five on it. So, but I would like to get a bigger board next. I think I like to longboard. Oh, really? I see. I just want to get shorter and shorter eventually and see if I can do some skateboarding tricks on my uh, little six foot fish or something of that nature. It's whether or not my, uh, whether or not my old busted up hips can handle the torque. I'm not hundred percent sure. Uh, we can we can start wrapping stuff up now anyways uh and i and i and i pray that you have a chance to come down to uh toronto sometime i would say during the winter so that i can get you a nice eight millimeter wetsuit to borrow okay and we can go surfing where there's chunks of ice floating beside you in the water i would like to try it i'll 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 try (laughs) it's actually amazingly uh Again, this is my first winter doing it, and uh, it's amazingly warm in those wetsuits. And uh, even with the giant ice beards that I have developing, uh, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty comfortable. You know, we know you're heading out soon. Uh, once your boat is finished uh, getting renovated, 
What do you think the next year or two holds for, for Dr. Shetty? Are you just going to keep traveling? I think that's a very real possibility. Um, I hoping to be in Mexico for at least a year. We want to take the boat into the Sea of Cortez and look at doing some wildlife work up there and maybe even some marine mammal stuff, but also doing the domestic animal um, spay and neuter campaigns, vaccinations, that kind of thing. Basically, the plan is to kind of spend the first few months back in the water doing a bit of reconnaissance and identifying areas that could use our help and um, kind of like what you did with Jamaica where you go first and just kind of do a little groundwork and then go back and then we are hoping we don't know yet either maybe go across the pacific or take the boat down to Colombia or through the panama canal so we'll see <laughs> big plans but wherever the wind takes us for now well i think our uh, wi-fi gods have uh had us lose dr shetty for one last time but uh that was a great interview and uh please everyone check out her youtube page check her out on patreon Give her a little bit of support and love. Thank you for listening to this episode. I am Dr. Cliff. This is Dr. Cliff Podcast. Be kind to animals. <laughs>